6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Major Prophets. The exciting discovery is there is a verse 39 between verse 38 and 40. And I'm not being facetious, it's a treasure, because John says, after uh, quoting from Isaiah 2, if you will, Isaiah, the second Isaiah, Isaiah 53, therefore they could not believe because that Isaiah said again. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6. He quotes from Isaiah 53, he quotes from Isaiah 6, and links them as being written by the same Isaiah. So if these scholars that get their PhDs and H2SO4s from their seminary are correct, John is wrong. I bet on John, okay? See, this, this linkage of the two Isaiahs is precious to me because it's another example of several things. There is no heresy, there is no false doctrine, there is no weird off-the-wall idea that isn't anticipated in the Scripture. You'll find the subtlest little things tucked around, and you'll discover that they're planted there by the Holy Spirit to refute some nonsense that someone will come up with in the future. And this Deuteroisaiah thing is shredded by little, one little verse, verse 39 of John 12. I'm so, <laughs> I'm so grateful for that, because I remember the grief that I had as a teenager for many years till I discovered this, to put away this nonsense about the Deuteroisaiah. Well, let's look at the panorama of history. Of course, we've gone through this with Abraham all the way through and so forth, and we're now focusing on the exile, and uh, literally up to the exile, the Babylonian captivity, and the major prophets start in the middle of the monarchy and go into the but not through the end of the Babylonian captivity, except for Daniel. Daniel does. And the minor prophets, of course, start earlier and go later. So the minor prophets, even though they're smaller books, cover a larger span of history. Now let's get down here and take a look at Jeremiah, who officiates, so to speak, in the final days of the, uh, the monarchy before it goes into uh, the Babylonian captivity. And so he's known as the weeping prophet. He was commissioned uh, in chapter 1, and then he has a bunch of prophecies that before the fall of Jerusalem. Chapters 2 through 20 are undated, uh, aren't, aren't specific. And they're not, by the way, they're not necessarily in chronological order. There's a whole thing there I'll, I'll spare you right now. But uh, there are a handful of them that are specific and very da uh, dated for some reasons that deal with the last four of uh, Judah's kings. You understand there were about nine different dynasties in the northern kingdom, but there's only one dynasty in the southern kingdom, the dynasty of David. You should need to understand that. You can't properly explain the history of any nation if you leave God out of the picture. Corrupt leadership 
inoculates the whole nation with moral poison, and the inward failure ultimately issues forth in national sin. And that's exactly the pro forma of, of the nation that Jeremiah is overseeing, and it's a tragic tale. And if you go through our commentaries, the ones that we did some years ago, you may even hear me weep on it. It's, it's a tough stuff because as you go through that, you can't help but see some parallels with our own nation. But in any case, uh, there are also prophecies from chapter 40 to 44, prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem where he's off, carried off to Egypt, continues writing. Then there's a whole bunch of prophecies included uh, upon the Gentile nations. Egypt, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Elam, Persia. He also talks about the doom of Babylon, and we'll talk more about that before it's all over. And of course, finally, Jerusalem is overthrown. The weeping prophet. He's one of the bravest, tenderest, most pathetic figures in history, because he was a patriot as well as a prophet. He cared about his nation, and uh, that makes it painful. He ministered for over 40 years, about 80 years after Isaiah, under two kings, the most tragic national record ever written. And in 40 years, he never received a grateful response from anyone. Thrown in dungeons, prison, they felt his writings were treasonous, they didn't repent, obviously, and so forth. And one of the questions as you study Jeremiah, and I encourage you to do that, is to see if you think there's any parallels to our own predicament. I'll give you one quote from him that sort of captures his mood. Chapter 9, verse 1, he says, Oh, that my head were waters, and mine eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This is his mood. This is his, in fact, there's an, an acrostic poem added to his book called Lamentations. Basically an acrostic poem amplifying all this. There was another weeping prophet that wept over Jerusalem while riding a donkey. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus Himself said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent to thee! How often I would gather thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings! And ye would not! Behold, your house is left unto you desolate! For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, until ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord! Here you have the purpose of all history how I would have gathered the children together as a hen gathered chickens. That was the purpose of all history. The tragedy of all history, ye would not. He came and they, he received, they received Him not. But the triumph of all history is that he, there will be a day when they will say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, and they will achieve that destiny that God has specified all through the Old Testament and the New. Well, some highlights. There are a lot of key themes in Jeremiah. The process of divine judgment in national life is the overriding theme. And the whole theme is that God has not abandoned His throne, and neither has He abandoned His people. Jerusalem, I will punish, but I will restore. That's basically His message. And He precisely specifies the seven-year captivity. In fact, it's Daniel reading chapter 25 of Jeremiah that realizes, as a captive in Babylon, it's about over. Jeremiah said it's going to be 70 years. It turns out it was 70 years to the very day. 
But something very important that we learn from Daniel, I'll remind you, when Daniel discovers the end is about near, he doesn't say, man, isn't that neat, and put his feet up on the desk and relax. He goes to prayer. If you knew that God was coming back, if the Lord, Lord if the rapture of the church or whatever was happening, you know, uh, by the first of March, what would you do? Man, rely. Oh boy, he's coming. No, that means you got just. That's time to get into serious prayer. Prayer is God's way of enlisting you in what He's doing. And Jeremiah also talks about the new covenant. He gives the name to the New Testament. We call it the New Testament, which is a strange term. Because his testament is like a will and testament, someone death, and of course, that's, that's part of it. But a new covenant, probably more descriptive, and that really comes out of Jeremiah 31, the whole idea of a new covenant. Then the Duma Babylon, of course, is a topic I've mentioned. There's another verse that many people don't really understand in Jeremiah 22, closing the chapter, verse 30 of chapter 22. By the time you get there, God has had it with these kings. The northern kingdom went from bad to worse, and they're, they're gone. But the southern kingdom was not much better. They had a few exceptions come along, Josiah, Hezekiah, and a few others. But um, from there on, it's downhill after Josiah. In fact, it gets so bad under Jeconiah that God pronounces a blood curse on he, he and his descendants. And if you look at Jeremiah 22, verse 30, Thus saith the Lord, Write this man childless, a man that shall not prosper in his days. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. Here's a curse on Jeconiah. Okay, he blew it. Bad news. But notice what God has done. He's pronounced a curse on the line descending from Jeconiah. Whenever I get into this topic, I always can't resist visualizing that when that happened in the councils of Satan, they probably had a party. Because I'm sure they were convinced God had shot Himself in the foot, as we might say. That he, because he, he's, God has committed Himself to a Messiah coming from the line of David. This is the Davidic line, and if there's a curse on it, how is He going to have a Messiah? And as I visualize that imaginary thought, I visualize God turning to the angels saying, watch this one. As you go through your Bible, when you get to the New Testament, you get to Luke, Luke gives you a different genealogy than Matthew does. Matthew gives you the legal line from Abraham down through Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ. Not the blood father, though. Luke, being a doctor, is interested in this humanity. He goes from Adam to Abraham. But Abraham to David, they're identical. But David, Luke takes a left turn, doesn't go through Solomon, the the first surviving son of Bathsheba. He goes through the second son, surviving son of the second surviving son of Bathsheba, a guy by the name of Nathan, not Nathan the prophet, another Nathan, I believe, to Mary. And so here Jesus Christ is in, has entitlement to the throne through Joseph, his legal father. He also has entitlement through Heli, through the, the provision in the Torah for the daughters of Zelophehad. It's interesting in its own right, but it's also interesting from a methodological point of view. Because if you stand back from the Bible and look at the whole package, you discover that every detail is skillfully designed to fit together. There's nothing in there irrelevant. And that's the challenge. You'll find some things that, what's that there for? 
study it, because behind that question will be a treasure, a discovery. And it always does. Well, the doom of Babylon, I think I've covered this before, but we'll talk more about it before it's all over anyway. The destruction of Babylon, according to Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51, is that it's never to be re-inhabited. It'll, it'll never, the building materials will never be reused, and it'll be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. That has never happened. It has been inhabited. The building materials are presently being reused. It has never been destroyed catastrophically and finally as Sodom and Gomorrah has. Both Jeremiah and Isaiah emphasize that. The fall of Babylon, 539, that some of your Bibles help say fulfilled that is not true. Because it, it fell without a battle. It became Alexander's capital. It was the Persian capital for two centuries and the, the Greek capital following that. It atrophied over the centuries, but it's presently being rebuilt. And uh, one of the things you want to watch, because if, if we understand our Bible correctly, this fabled city from the Tower of Babel far onward is, has a destiny to rise again as a major world power to receive the judgment that God is in store for. And as you watch that happen, it's going to be very fun because a lot of good Bible scholars don't agree with this. Say, Chuck, you're getting carried away with all this. Well, we'll see. Stand back and watch. Watch your, watch your newspaper. You'll see. And that's, there's also an aspect of this that we'll touch on when we get to Revelation. So, okay, um, we've been focusing down here on uh, these, uh, these guys. At this point, let's take a look at Ezekiel. Uh, he was a priest and a prophet like Jeremiah. Not only an office of prophet, but he also had a priest background. He was one of the 10,000 that were taken captive in the second siege, Daniel in the first, these guys in the second, about 11 years before the final overthrow of Jerusalem when it's finally destroyed. See, Jeremiah and Ezekiel kept preaching to yield to Nebuchadnezzar because he's, God, he's God's instrument of judgment. The false prophets said, no, we're God's chosen people, and he, you know, they always encouraged rebellion. And uh, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah says, if you do it again, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. They're a vassal right now, but they're at least able to live there. If you keep this up, God is going to level the place. And that's exactly what did happen 11 years later. Ezekiel talks about the coming judgments on Jerusalem, and he's a very colorful character. He has all kinds of similes and visions. He, he acts out skits to make his point, and they're really bizarre ones. And I won't go through them here, but they're kind of very colorful reading. But he also deals with the future destinies of the nations. And he specifically has a passage on the origin and destiny of Satan. Both Isaiah and Ezekiel give us most of what we know about Satan's origin and ultimate destiny. But Ezekiel will also focus, fortunately, on the restoration of the nation Israel. He'll talk about the Valley of Dry Bones, and uh, he'll talk about Gog and Magog. We'll touch a, a bit on those. Then, of course, he has a tremendous amount of detail on the Millennium, chapter 40 through 48, about how the land will be allocated, and he has an incredibly detailed specification for the final temple. Not the temple that they will be re rebuilding in the near horizon, but the uh, temple in the millennium. And it's a subject of a lot of debate because it's, it's too detailed to be just an allegory of some kind, and yet it's uh, uh, so bizarre that it raises other questions, but that's a, s a special study. So there are strange similes all through uh, Ezekiel. He shuts himself up in his home. He binds himself. He is struck dumb. He was to lie on his right and his left sides for a total of 430 days in one episode. He ate bread that was prepared in an unclean manner. 
and he shaved his head and beard, which was considered a shame in, in their particular culture and calling. So uh, he's a, he's a, he's, <laughs> this guy's a character. But one of the things he has that attracts a lot of attention is he has a vision of the throne of God. And in this he sees cherubim that have four faces. Isaiah in Isaiah 6 sees seraphim. They may be the same thing. Some scholars think there may be two different kinds of things. But in each case they share these strange four faces. A face like a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Now it's interesting because the camps of Israel in Numbers 2 the twelve tribes were clustered into four camps. The camp of Judah, the camp of Ephraim, the camp of Reuben, the camp of Dan, which have as their ensigns those same four symbols. And then when you get to the Gospels, we haven't gotten there yet, but when we do you'll discover that the four Gospels present Jesus Christ from four vantage points. Matthew, being a Jew, presents Him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Mark presents him as the suffering servant. The classical symbol of service was, of course, the oxen. And uh, Luke's a doctor. He's focusing on Christ's humanity and presents him as the Son of Man. John is a whole other uh, thing with a, as the Son of God. So we'll talk about that when we get to the Gospels. Let's talk about Satan, because he's too important not to uh, highlight here. We talk a little bit about his origin, his agenda, and his destiny. We learn most of that from two books, Isaiah and Ezekiel. In Isaiah 14 we find his ambition as uh, exemplified by his five I will statements. Ezekiel tells us that he was the anointed cherub that covered. The cherub, singular of cherubim, is a super angel. He apparently was the anointed one, that is the one appointed over all the others. The anointed one that covereth is a, a quaint way of expressing that. In Revelation we find a summary of his attempts to thwart the plan of redemption. All the way through, you can study the Bible from cover to cover in terms of Satan's attempts to thwart God's plan. As it's revealed more clearly, he makes his attacks more specific. All the way through. But let's take a look at Ezekiel 28. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now this, he's talking in this general passage about the king of Tyre. But now his language starts getting carried away here a little bit. Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. I have never met the king of Tyre, but I don't know if he was the, the ultimate of wisdom and ultimate in beauty. That sort of is, seems a little extreme to be found in a document like the Word of God. Then the next phrase nails it. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Really? Was the king of Tyre in Eden? I don't think so. This is being addressed, I believe, to the power behind the king of Tyre. Follow me? Strange structure, but we see it frequently in the Scripture. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. There's only three people in the garden of God that I know of. And is this, this is not Adam or Eve. It's the Nachash, the shining one. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou wast created. These precious stones are classic ways of reflecting colored light. And we find that in the, obviously in the breastplate of the high priest. We find it in the New Jerusalem in Revelation. It's, it's an idiom that uh, deserves a lot of attention, but uh, uh, we're really uh, indulging in conjectures that go any further than that. 
But the other phrase in here, the workmanship of thy tabrets and thy pipes, those are musical terms. It's from this phrase that we understand that his music capability was unparalleled. And there's speculation on some that he probably had the worship in, the, in heaven until he got overly ambitious and got carried away with his own plans. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy days from the day that thou wast created, comma, Thou wast perfect from the day thou wast... No, he, now, he's obviously a super being. It's obvious, though, that he's a created being. Question, who created him? Jesus Christ. Colossians tells us that all things were made by him. Without him was not anything, anything made that was made. And by him are all things held together. You often hear between Christ and Satan as a phrase or something. That's misleading. They're not equals. Not by a long shot. Satan is a created being. He's not, and so let's not confuse that point. Then we have the saddest words, saddest word in the entire Scripture. Thou was perfect in thy days from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. An interesting scrapbook to put together would be make a list of all the untils in the Bible. They usually represent a milestone of some kind, profound milestones. You can make you could make quite a, a doctrinal dissertation just highlighting the main untils in the scripture. And this is one of them. He's the anointed cherub that covereth. He was in charge. Until iniquity was found in thee. Then it goes on, by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled, the merchandise being like traffic, multitude of thy traffic, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. And Isaiah is going to pick up on this theme, give us a little more amplification than it. But continuing with Ezekiel, thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude. Thy sanctuaries. See, he apparently led worship. Thou hast defied, defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Let's shift to Isaiah. There's a similar passage in Isaiah 14. See, remember, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. See, it's multiple of seven. But in Isaiah, he is taking after the king of Babylon. Ezekiel was tired. Here's Babylon. But again, the same thing. The language goes, pierces beyond the, the literal king and is talking about the power that's behind him. And Isaiah says in verse 12 and following, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, 
which is weak in the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The five I wills. This is why God hates pride. Because it was the pride in Satan that led to the beginning of sin. That's why leaven is a symbol of pride, because it corrupts by puffing up. Isaiah continues, Yet thou shalt be brought down to Sheol, to the sides of the pit. When you see the word hell uh, in the English, you have to realize there's several choices it could be referring to. If it's in the Old Testament, it's typically talking about Sheol, Sheol which is not the grave. The grave is for the body. The Sheol is the is the domain of the spirits. Sheol can't be owned. There's a single Sheol. There are lots of graves, only one Sheol. It's a different, it's, it's similar, but different concept. The grave speaks to the physical, the Sheol, the spiritual, the, the, the soul and the spirit are in Sheol. In the New Testament, the term would be Hades, roughly equivalent, unless he's talking about the ultimate place, which is Gehenna, because even Sheol and Hades will be thrown into Gehenna at the end. We'll see when we get there. So seeing of Satan, yet thou shalt be brought down to show to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? That did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? That opened not the house of his prisoners? Wow. See, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then shall they say also them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. See, the ultimate punishment that we always talk about in hell in the common vernacular was made for Satan and his angels. And no one will be in hell because of their sin they will be in hell for having rejected the provision God has made for their sin. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station, or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Misser continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.